0: And girls, welcome back to the Inspiration Space. If you hear some loud music behind me, I promise you, I'm not in a nightclub, I'm in the gym. So, that is what that is not guilty. So, today on the show, I've got a, a guest on that I've had on before. She's awesome, one of the smartest people I've ever had the pleasure of sitting down with Katrina Beaufard. She is a clinical sex psychologist, she is a well renowned speaker on the topic. I quite literally am fascinated every time I sit down with her because the stuff she's got to say about sex and relationships is absolutely mind-blowing and it's something that you know for our Asian demographic you know 25 to 40 this is really really good stuff to to listen to guys and get a really good understanding of okay so yeah get tuned into this i've had her on the show before if you haven't listened to that one definitely go back and listen to it it's one of my top downloaded episodes she knows her stuff and she's absolutely awesome so guys uh get stuck into this if you do have a second please go back and uh go to your podcast provider um, go and give, uh, the podcast, the inspiration space, a five-star rating for you. It just means that I can carry on getting fantastic guests such as, such as Katrina on the show and all the other fantastic guests that I have had on. All right, guys, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend, week, whenever you're listening to this and get stuck in. Welcome back. <laughs> it's so great. As I was saying, we are recording. I need to legally tell you this now, by the way. I didn't realize you actually have to tell people when you're legally recording them.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. It. I'm all right without a consent to it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I was
0: just saying before we started that the one we previously did is up there with one of my top downloads because people want to hear this stuff.
1: Yeah, they, they do. do. They, they do. do. Makes I've, me happy. It makes does. me really happy. Well, That's great.
0: And, um, you know, I, thank you so much for taking some time out because I know how busy you are to come down and talk to me again.
1: Thrilled to do it. I, I, don't, I don't know if you, you asked me to do this or I think I said, like, I'm doing this again. <laughs> I don't know who well, it was mine. It was good fun last time. It was great fun. It was great, good. Fun. And we spoke about so much.
0: We did. So much. With you I could have felt like you could have talked about any of those topics for a podcast episode at a time.
1: Oh, thanks. That's nice to hear because, I mean, that's what I want to do one day. One day I'll get you on my podcast as my guest. How about that? That'd be great fun. So much fun.
0: So I thought today, uh, because we're talking about things to talk about, I thought it would be good to label this one, what women want. And obviously we'll talk about kind of what men want as well, because obviously it's all holistic in 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 that regard. But I thought that would be that would be a good approach, and I and I thought it would be good to kind of go back to and talk about how people's kind of perceptions and expectations and uh, views towards the opposite sex develop from a young age. So I, I think you know, I'm not. I'm going to try and not use this as a personal session, because, but I know there are so many people that think about this kind of stuff from my from my age category and 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 sex. So. Where do people's perceptions and expectations of the opposite sex start to develop? Can we talk a little bit about that yeah. we
1: yeah, we can um I think maybe just just as a little disclaimer before we we talk about it one we're talking about heterosexual relationships right yes okay, and two we're talking about cisgendered men and women, right so that means People who identify as masculine, or men, and people who identify as feminine, female. Sure. Uh, not masculine, feminine, male and female. I'm gonna blame the heat for any <laughs> brain brain mush. Um, so le- yeah, so we're just talking about cisgendered men and women, right, in sure. heterosexual relationships. Because
0: I'm sure going the other way it could be another podcast episode in itself.
1: Oh, absolutely. App, I mean, that's a whole other topic for like several podcasts. Well, there we go. Okay, so talking about you know, the origins, right? Yes. origins of where do our experiences towards the opposite sex, our interest in the opposite sex come from, and that's assuming you're interested in the opposite sex. For me, if we get really into it and look at the theory of it, Mm -hmm. um, it's more about the type of partner we're looking for than, you know, the um, physical attributes that they might have. Yes, we know we might like a tall, dark and handsome guy or a, you know, five foot four blonde lady with blue eyes. You know, on the physical attribute side, that's just a a characteristics thing um, that actually relates to a theory called the matching hypothesis. So we will find ourselves attracted to somebody who we believe is of the same attractiveness level as ourselves. Um, But if we take it a deeper in terms of what kind of partner we look for, (laughs) There's a very interesting theory that speaks to how we will unconsciously choose a partner that has parts in them that we are missing. So, as an example, if one person really struggled when they were little to feel noticed, they may try and find a partner who makes a big fuss of them. So they're looking ultimately for a partner who's going to fulfill something that wasn't met for them as a child. So I think when it comes to talking about relationships and talking about attraction to the opposite sex, we've obviously got the physical stuff, but then the emotional stuff, I believe, really goes way back to childhood and to the relationships that we have with our primary caregivers who are most often our parents, sure, mom and dad, usually.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I thought that was one thing that really struck out to me when you were speaking there is, yeah, a lot of it must... Must come from the relationship you have with your parents, almost. Yeah. Um,
1: and what you see your parents' relationship as, yeah,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so so in it's in a situation where your parents are separated or something like that, that could have a significant impact on yep. what you what you what you're out there looking for and probably like stability is something that would be key to you, for example.
1: Yep, absolutely. Or you could develop a complete distrust in men. In, in men. In men or in women, women or, or in relationships. Yeah no no I mean we're talking about what women yeah. want. So yeah. yeah, so if it's in men, yes, they could develop a complete mistrust of men. If they had a father who was unavailable, who was having affairs, yes, absolutely. Mm. It can develop a trust it can develop into a distrust of men. No. which as an adult woman means you you're going to struggle in relationships mm. and that's coming from the, the imprint or the blueprint uh, the imprint that you have on you as a child or the blueprint that your parents leave on you so it's not only the relationship that you have with them but the relationship you're seeing that they have and so when I'm seeing a new client I'm always asking tell me about your parents mm. people don't like this question they mm. really run away from this question But tell me about your parents. What was their relationship like? Did you ever see them being affectionate with one another? Did you ever hear them having sex? Did you see them having sex? What did they say to each other? How did they express love to you and to one another, to your siblings? All of those things are the foundation of the of the building that we're kind of developing as we as we grow up in terms of relationships, mm-hmm. and then obviously the relationship that a parent has with a child. If the child feels wanted, feels valued, feels appreciated, feels needed, um, feels important, feel that they matter. Uh, all of these things contribute to how um, we are in a relationship, and for women in particular, there's uh, there's often you know that stereotypical. Uh, Idea that men look for people like their mothers and girls look for people like their fathers Mm. but for women in particular there there's this kind of juxtaposition between wanting to be with somebody who perhaps can be more in a protective role which is paternal versus being with somebody who is open to them being who they want to be or whatever so Often women find quite a conflicting experience in relationships because of what they've grown up with in a father or a mother, and then what they get into with a with a male partner later on. Interesting. I feel like that didn't make sense. But no, it, no,
0: it did. It, it, it did, and and also, I it's funny. Like, <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna f- phrase this, but does that form how? Obviously, as a sexual psychologist, does that? those early years for, not just in terms of what they look for in relationships, but also do those early years um, structure how they are, how they view and how they approach sexual interactions?
1: Absolutely. Right? So the way that sex Because obviously
0: you get like people that are slightly more offish and some people are a lot more sort of free to, feel free to express themselves.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it's a, you know, it comes down for me to the function of sex. Why? Why are you having sex in a relationship? Are you having sex because you want to feel close to your partner? Mm. Are you having sex because you feel that your partner needs to have sex? And I see that often with women. Yeah. So when I'm working with heterosexual women who say have been married for several years, they will often feel that they have to have sex out of obligation, not because they want to. So I think if we're talking specifically about about women here mm. the the experience of sex is obviously unique to everybody we gen, every, i'm always generalizing hugely i think i've of said that on the last of podcast course, yeah. i have to generalize i can't speak to specific to specifics but for women sex is often viewed quite differently um, in my clinical experience what the research is telling us than it is to men and sex can be used differently in a relationship and of course the experience that we have growing up with our parents does impact the experience we have of sex. So we may use sex, intimacy and affection to be close to a partner, to create closeness, to feel safe in a relationship when actually that's because maybe our parents weren't very affectionate with us as children. And so we're looking for that in, an, in a partner as we get older. But if you get somebody who's sort of not going that way is a kind of averse to being sexual and would rather not be sexual then again i'm looking and saying well what's happened with affection with you growing up you know what was affection like has there been a trauma mm. has there been something that's happened that's pushed you away from this and I think the last time we did the podcast we spoke about distances and pursuers didn't we yes a little bit yes and this is the similar thing with emotional stuff as well right
0: Could we touch on that again just for the list yeah, yeah yeah sure
1: absolutely so there's this notion that in a relationship what we often find is we find one distancer and one pursuer the distancer. let's just talk sexually for a second The distancer is the one that says I don't need sex to feel close to you and I get anxious when you ask for sex and the pursuer is the one that says, I need sex and I want to have sex, and I do that in order to feel close to you. Mm. And so they're coming as well from an anxious position. Now, that happens as well with emotions. We can have somebody in a relationship who is the emotional pursuer. What's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me what's happening. I don't understand. I need you. Let's talk about it and you have the emotional distancer who says i don't want to talk about it i'm fine leave me alone go away you don't have to be the emotional distancer and the sexual distancer. you can have a mixture you can have a mixture but again that is coming from the blueprint that you had growing up and the experiences that you had growing up and distances and pursuers like magic often find each other why oops because we've got that part in them that we're missing in us so we're looking to find that part like puzzle of ourselves
0: coming, like a puzzle coming in together
1: exactly yeah
0: fascinating okay okay that's that's a really great starting point
1: so much theory we started with there yeah Just no like but i like it, it there. No, i like it i like theory. okay, good. okay.
0: <laughs> so i want to touch so something that over the last 15 years has, that has had a monumental effect on the world is obviously the presence of social media right and we're there's almost a general, well, I would say there's a generation now that have grown up with it and the like the, the never ending constant overload of information that comes through it. Imagery and all these kinds of things, which can definitely be poisonous and, and shape people's behaviors and da 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 da. So, I mean, definitely with something like fa- obviously Facebook and Instagram, constant overload of this stuff that comes through, that ha- must have such a significant impact on males and females and how they view relationships, how they view what sex should be, how they view what they should be looking like, all these kind of things. How, in your experience, has or can this affect, going forward, people's um, approach to relationships? and? and Where they think they should be fitting in in the grand scheme of things in in this regard
1: it's a massive problem yeah right much like with body image with lifestyle same with relationships and all too often you see that that celebrity or influencer posting about how great their partner is and how great the relationship is and my sweetheart and my darling and this and that and the next and then two weeks later the relationships ended so for me social media with body image, with lifestyle, with whatever, paints a completely filtered and fake picture of what's actually happening. And very often I've seen people use social media like Instagram to portray something that they want to be happening, or they want to believe is happening, we've got a great relationship, everything's perfect, when actually it's really, really not. And so, you know, much like the negative influence that a celebrity like Kim Kardashian can have on people using lollipops to lose weight, <laughs> right? You know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, um, it's the same with, with relationships. If you're seeing your role model, a celebrity, post an, that they've got this fantastic relationship and everything's perfect and yours isn't like that and every relationship you've experienced isn't like that, the instant thought is, what's wrong with me? Absolutely,
0: yeah, 100%. Instant. So true,
1: so true. Right? Even, I even hear from women, you know, I went to a book club, and book clubs, let's be honest, are not generally about books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, going to book clubs and saying, well, everyone else in the room said they had an orgasm before, I haven't. Uh, what's wrong with me? And so many women just going along with a conversation to, to perpetuate that, yes, I'm normal. So this idea of what's wrong with me gets internalised deeper and deeper and deeper through social media and you know if you can find somebody on social media who is an influencer or somebody who has I don't know power over others in some way shape or form who's real about the relationship to say we had a really rough month we fought constantly and we you know didn't sleep in the same bed for six nights and I didn't want to go near him I don't know how many followers they'd have Mm. people don't like that realness there's like that fine line between i want to see the real but i also want to see kim kardashian with the lollipop in her mouth mouth.
0: yeah
1: it's so true
0: right it just creates this expectation doesn't it like and it's
1: i've got a great i've got a great line for you porn creates such false expectations of how quickly a plumber will get to your house
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is so (laughs) so good Porn's a good one. I mean, that's definitely a great topic. I mean,
1: oh, well, we're going to talk about expectations. How long have you yeah, got? Yeah. Wow.
0: I mean, p- porn is a, is, a, is a great one because obviously, you know, I, I'm me going to boarding school and I've got a very strong group of mates. Obviously, porn's like, you know, something that's talked about. Let's be honest, let's put it out there. Yeah. We've grown up with it. Also your,
1: I mean, it. Was it a male only boarding school?
0: Uh, no, it wasn't. Oh, COVID. Okay, I was going to yeah. say
1: only access to women is pornography. Yeah,
0: so. <laughs> exactly. But, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting one because it probably in some... It's, I mean, I know, I know some guys that probably arguably have a porn addiction.
1: Absolutely. I
0: mean, is that, that must be a thing. And it's a so dangerous. Common. That's super... De- I know Terry Crews had it. You know, yeah. Yeah, Terry Crews. I mean, he talks openly about it, about having a porn addiction and how it almost brought his, re- his relationship to the ground.
1: Yeah. And I see it so
0: often. That's fascinating. So and often. okay, let's talk about the background behind that. That's I find that very interesting. Okay. not that I, I really don't have porn addiction. I mean, I, I, yeah, I never, you know, I watched porn in my life, but it's not something that I, I don't, I see the logic behind doing that over actually having a sexual interaction
1: with someone right that okay so let's talk just two things before we get into the answer of that question the one is what is an addiction yeah and actually what we call it we don't call it an addiction uh it's a it's compulsivity so sexual compulsivity so either what you would think of as a sex addiction or a porn addiction compulsively needing to seek out that level of arousal that stimulation from porn Right? Yeah. So that's the first thing. So, generally, when we're talking about something that is, uh, would be classified as a sexual compulsivity, it's impairing day to day function, okay? It's sort of getting in the way of you living each day. Sure. It's becoming something that has to happen, not something that you'd like to happen. And it's causing you distress or it's causing others distress, perhaps some that you're in a relationship with. And I think what you just said is so fundamental. It's not replacing the partner. Mm. When it starts to replace the partner, we don't automatically say that there's a, an issue there, but uh, a compulsivity there, but we do say that there is an issue. If, if you're using porn to replace your partner, why? What's happening there? Uh, that was the first thing. Now I need to remember what the second thing was, and I'll <laughs> obviously remember it in a moment. But when it comes to porn, oh yes, I remembered. I think porn can be incredibly healthy, and I prescribe porn to some clients. A lot of women I prescribe porn to, and I I will be very specific, I will send them certain websites I want them to look at, certain things I want to look at. I will also ban porn use entirely for men. That's what I'm often having to do. When we think about men and women, there is this expectation that men just watch porn, and there's almost this hush-hush. That women do it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, guys just watch porn at boarding school, porn, cool, whatever. Women watch porn too. Mm. Um, I was reading about, about um, stats released from Pornhub that women searching for porn increased by 400% last year wow. on Pornhub. So women want to watch porn, but they don't want to watch the same porn men are watching. So we can talk a little bit about the differences between men and women, and then we can talk a little bit about the expectations that it's creating and how it can come into this notion of uh, what's wrong with me, am I normal sort of thing. So men and women generally watch very different porn. What research has found is that women are far more psychologically flexible than men. So what that means is they're far more open to watching some bondage some girl on girl action guy and two girls girl and two guys than men are men are much more rigid in their thinking when it comes to or in their choice and selection when it comes to porn so women will far rather go and explore and be flexible in what they want to watch and how they're watching it than men will right really interesting
0: that is very interesting
1: most porn is male centered it's made for men okay and it as I was joking about you know, plumbers and things like that, it creates intensely false representations of real sex, incredibly false representations. So this is where the healthy and the not so healthy comes in. Porn can be great in the right context and used for the right reasons for couples, for individuals. Porn can also be incredibly detrimental. And for most young men, porn is often the first view of sex the first full-on view of sex you've heard about it you've spoken about it maybe you saw something on his friend's cell phone nowadays you know back then it was magazines and and vhs tapes you know dad's back (laughs) covered you know um but that it's often you know watching porn is often a a boy's first glimpse into what sex is and nowadays for women as well for girls so what they're seeing is a completely false representation of real sex. There's a fantastic um, illustrator, her name's Hazel Mead, um, and she, she did the most incredible poster of things you don't see in mainstream sex with all these fantastic um, illustrations of you know somebody needing to pee and the cat standing staring at you and somebody falling off the bed and somebody pulling your hair like like as in lying on your hair not pulling it for sexual pleasure <laughs> um and and it went it blew up it went viral yeah. and i'm so grateful she turned it into a poster and it's sitting proudly in my office on my wall um but it is 100 percent accurate because what you're seeing in pornography is male centered is I mean, I'm going to generalize, but women screaming top of their lungs how pleasured they are from having intense thrusting and pounding and vaginal and anal penetration and oral penetration, all male centered. And then all of a sudden they've gone like in 100 positions. The woman climaxes and it's explosive and it's wonderful. And then the man can climax or he comes on her face. Don't know many girls that want that to happen. (laughs) Come on her boobs, whatever, like and then it's done. Yeah. So first things first, we're talking about what women want. Very, the, the minority of women want sex like that. Minority. I don't know many women that want to have come on their face or, or want to be treated in that way, which can sometimes be seen as quite humiliating and demeaning in reality. Um, but I do know from clinical work, from the research, that men do want sex like that. They want to be having sex that is often more dominant, that is more male-centered, that is more focused on his pleasure, yeah? Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely, I mean, it's fascinating. So where does the negotiation happen there? Well,
1: first and foremost, porn is not real, it's all acting, of course. okay? So it's about understanding that men are hired on the, the base of their penis being a certain size. Right. And men do take Viagra so that they can last long. And they will film the come shot first because he's not going to last an entire 30 minute porno scene which takes days and days and days to film. And that woman is very unlikely to be climaxing. And it's about recognising all of those things. When it comes to realising in the, in the bedroom, in reality, where do we negotiate on it? If you're not aware, and particularly for women, if you're not aware of what it is that you like sexually and what works for you in your Mm. body, and you are sort of perhaps conscious, anxious, or ashamed of communicating that with your partner, you're unlikely to get any kind of sexual pleasure that you're really wanting, or allow yourself to get any kind of sexual pleasure that you're wanting. Mm. So if your view of sex is porn, you're not going to be having particularly realistic porn and you're probably going to be quite disappointed Mm. when it comes to your sexual experiences overall.
0: Communication is just like so key in that scenario.
1: Absolutely huge, huge, huge. If a couple can't communicate about sex, which I see all the time, um, whether it's feeling of embarrassment or shame or there's been a trauma or they just don't know where to start, um, it's a really tough conversation. It's so funny. We all do it. We just don't. Talk about it, you know. We're all open to talking about fitness and health and we're all doing it whatever, but this topic is shameful. Still, Mm. it's twenty nineteen, but people still struggle to talk about it. And I think that's why I do want to do podcasts and one day you will be a guest on my own podcast because I'm desperate to create that sex positive education and and conversation around sex. Openness about it. So if I'm getting a couple where the woman's got intense shame around sex because that was her that was modeled to her when she was little Um, You know, her parents walked in when she was two years old with her hands down her pants, which is normal Mm. for children to do. They are just being curious. And she was instantly uh, smacked, shamed, you know, criticized, uh, shouted at, rejected. Instantly she'll associate Mm. pleasure with shame. So for a couple who experiences that, where the woman experiences shame and the man um, doesn't quite understand how to take it very slowly and gently, I'll get them to start at like, the most basic level, which is creating a sexual vocabulary for the two of them. So what words do they use around sex? Mm. Just talking about it in a real way, not in a pornographic, you know, derogatory, let's use this language kind of way. Mm. So really taking it back to basics and getting the couple from the get-go to create a good sexual foundation for the relationship. Yeah,
0: Fascinating. So what I want to talk about next, which I think leads us nicely onto it, is that kind of... Uh As you get older, obviously, you start dating people, okay? Females, do they, obviously, like we said, this is all generalized, okay? But what takes a female from that sort of dating honeymoon period into really wanting, realizing they want a relationship with that person? Is this the right question? Hold on. So yeah, so what's the, what's the mindset behind that? It, it must, there must be a process that goes on there that realizes actually this, that, this is the guy that I wanted to, to invest more time into. And as we know, there's we spoke about it earlier, the whole area of being a commitment phobe. What things can unlock you to, to actually go that extra mile? I mean, there must be 8,000 things.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question to answer as well because everybody's different. Yeah, cool. And some people will be terrified yeah. to take that step and actually cool. admit that they like somebody and that the other person likes them back and that there's this connection. But the way that I think about it is, is if we break relationships down into three stages. Sure. First stage, passion, Yeah. right? Oh, that intensity, I want to be around this person, I get like infatuation, I can't get enough of them. The brain is actually releasing a chemical that makes us love blind. So the notion of honeymoon period is a neurological experience, neurological, hormonal and chemical experience that we are having in our brain. So then, Passion happens, we decide this person's kind of nice, so we start opening up to them. So intimacy starts to take place. We start to share things about ourselves with them. We start to tell them things that we perhaps have never told anybody because we want to create this connection. We're trying to find common ground. So intimacy is the second stage. And then the third stage, once we've actually realized, okay, I told him about that time when I was 18 that I did that thing and he he didn't run okay, okay, he, he must, must really like me, there must be a connection there, there's something happening. Are we gonna do this then? Commitment is the third stage. And what I see in that change between, I think, passion and intimacy and intimacy and commitment, intimacy is that absolute foundation of it. Mm. So when a woman is in a relationship and she or she starts seeing somebody. Again, it's very individualized, but there's that point that she says, I feel like I can trust this person. I feel like I could let go with this person. I feel like I can can actually be myself with this person. That's where that shift happens. And there's that, perhaps that thought process of, could this be more? You know, we, we do live in a very fast paced world where it's about, it's a numbers game and, you know, Casual sex is more common now than it's ever been before, you know. And apps like uh, Tinder and I've been out of the dating scene. Now. <laughs> uh, Tinder and Bumble. like Bumble and Happen and yeah. even you know Grinder for 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 men, uh, same sex, yeah, you know, hookups and things like that. Um, or it's very fast-paced and it's it's often very much about casual relationships. So when that intimacy happens for a lot of people, it's when there's a little bit of oh, oh, I have feelings. Oh my god, I don't want to feel my feelings. Oh my god, I feel these feelings towards somebody else. Oh my mm. god, what does that mean? And do they feel the same way about me? It's that that intimacy, like just tipping over the edge, that I think for so many women is the very, very scary part, but can also be the really, really exciting, wonderful part if it's a mutual feeling.
0: Mm. Commit co- commit-mopho- commitmophobia.
1: phobia. yeah. <laughs> we can treat commitmophobia. Yeah,
0: I think it's I think it's Obviously being a male, I, I find, is, is it tend to be more common in, in men from, from experience, I mean, intimacy, mm. is it from, in, in, from being across all these relationships, mm. is it more often not men that struggle to commit or fully commit, mm-hmm. is it? Generalised. Okay,
1: we we get hugely, hugely generalised, generalised. Like huge disclaimer there. If we break intimacy down, right, I would break it down as into me you see. You get to see my dark sides and my light sides. You get to see me on my worst days and my best days, mm. and you still stick around, which means you accept me wholeheartedly for who I am. And mm. I know that sounded, God, that sounded so wonderfully eloquent there. <laughs> <laughs> so, intimacy is feelings, intimacy is vulnerability. Intimacy is opening up and letting go. If we generalize hugely, as I said, disclaimer on that, many, many, many men and women, as an aside, feel that vulnerability is weakness. Hmm. And if I do a talk and I ask people, how many of you in this audience think being vulnerable is being weak? I would say that usually the majority of men will put up their hands. Interesting. And a lot of women, but majority of men. if a man has to feel his feelings, that's quite scary. right? So for a lot of men, yes, I suppose we could say that if there is this notion that vulnerability is weakness and being intimacy, we let, being intimate, you let somebody else in, you get connected with them, they're allowed to see parts of you that you might not have shared with others, that can be scary. And so it's easier to avoid that, right? Hence, commitment-phobe, let me just have casual sex or just you know, jump between relationship to relationship, or as soon as it starts to get serious, I'm just not for me, and I'm going to check out. Yeah, or ghost. God, my worst It's yeah. <laughs> Not a good behaviour. <laughs> Don't understand why it's happening. Um, so you know things like that. But the commitment phobe—that that term, which isn't actually a, a real thing—but what I would say is somebody who has has fear of commitment. Has something called an anxious, uh, sorry, an avoidant attachment style, and if if you bear with me, I'll tell you about a very interesting study that was done quite some time ago, but that speaks to attachment between a primary caregiver, argument's sake, the mother, and a baby. So we get three different or two different types of attachment styles: a secure attachment and an insecure attachment, and this is the attachment that we have to that primary caregiver, being the mother so the secure attachment mom brings baby into a room okay scientists are watching through a one-way glass There are toys on the floor mom puts baby down baby plays a bit mom gets up to leave baby checks where mom's going and isn't thrilled about mom leaving mom steps outside the room baby looks very concerned doesn't know where mom's gone mom comes back in baby shows relief and carries on playing secure attachment i don't like that my mom's left but i do believe that she'll come back and if she comes back oh it's fine oh she just stepped out sort of thing in an adult relationship, it's, sure, you know, go out tonight with your friends, I'm cool about it, really don't mind and see you tomorrow morning and I feel safe and secure in you going out to do that and I'm not worried about our safety in the relationship. I don't need to phone you every five minutes to find out where you are, I don't need you to, you know, stay with me all night just to keep me safe sort of thing. Second scenario, so we get insecure attachment, we break that down up, down into anxious and avoidant. So, the anxious attachment style is a baby. Uh, mom brings baby into room, mom puts baby down, baby immediately gets upset. Mom leaves, baby's very upset, mom comes back, baby will do one of two things, will either cling to mom desperately, or will push mom away, as if to say, no, you hurt me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reject you. Okay, So what we often see in adult relationships, somebody who's very jealous, somebody who's overly scared of losing the partner, somebody who perhaps is quite needy or really needs a lot of safety or reassurance in the relationship, somebody who's worried when their partner goes away for business, all of those sorts of behaviors. And again, when the partner comes back, they may cling to the partner. and and that may be physically or emotionally, or they could push the partner away and be angry with the partner for leaving them. So that's an anxious attachment style. And then finally, the avoidant one. Mom brings baby into a room, puts baby down, baby doesn't look too perturbed, mom leaves, baby ignores mom, mom comes back, baby ignores mom. What that tells us is an adult relationship, where his commitment phobe comes from, is I do not believe you will take care of my needs, so I might as well take care of my own, and I will not allow myself to to feel my feelings towards somebody because when I've done that in the past, I got let down and hurt. Mm. So as an adult, I often develop an avoidance of intimacy, a commitment phobia, Mm. and I don't allow myself to feel those feelings because it's too scary. And I'm worried that I'll get let down again. So if we loop back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the session, the imprint that our parents leave on us as an adult, Yes, in men, I very often see avoidance, and it's because, you know, just pull yourself together, stop crying, you know, boys don't cry. I I very often see that. So I'm, no one will come to me when I need, when I'm in distress, so I mustn't show my feelings to anybody, my feelings are bad, commitment phobia. And girls, girls are given more permission to feel their feelings. So, you know, as, as adults, they may seem like, in, in generalised terms, the one who aren't as avoidant. Mm. But I am seeing a lot of women who are avoidant more and more and more these days. And unfortunately, I generally see it in terms of histories of abuse. Um, there's that mis- distrust of men.
0: It's funny, as you were to go through all those cases, mm. I firstly, I've been, this is, this is really actually good. This is really good material. Mm-hmm. I've sp- felt myself in both camps mm-hmm. which is funny
1: I've often heard that from yeah people. Mm-hmm. so
0: it kind of brings me back which is something I always talk about mm-hmm. and I think we spoke about last time about that growth mindset and yes, how yes. how you can you don't necessarily have to be in one camp you depending on where you are in your life and your mindset mm-hmm. you can shift into better or, or worse places you know Yep. so I think it's perfect it's kind of come round to, to wrap this up I mean kind of exactly what you do really is is you help people kind of have that openness communication to kind of move themselves into a better place within their relationship and how you move from being avoidant or uh, what's this sorry anxious anxious yep. into being that much Secure. more open and you know mm. in all honesty that's luckily you know, that's the way i'm in my relationship now you know mm. I, I, i'm almost would love my partner to be out there and having fun and because I'm, I'm in a good place mentally with, with everything that's going on. But I, I can't, like I said, I've, I've been in that other camp. it's mean, it's, it's a tough situation and it yeah. kind of starts with you, right? To
1: I was gonna say, you know, it kind of comes down to what your podcast, The Inspiration Space is all about, right, it, it, you have to be okay with yourself. Right. I'm not saying you never rely on others, but mm. I'm saying there's gotta be a part of you that's okay with yourself first and foremost. Mm. If something isn't okay with you, it's not going to be okay in a relationship. Mm. And I don't mean that in the sense of if you're, if you're struggling with something like depression, your relationship isn't going to be okay. Yeah. But something like depression does have an effect on a relationship. Something that's going on for you will affect your partner. And being aware of that, knowing how it could affect your relationship is so important. And yes, it can change. It really, really can. And one's attachment style from the imprint that we got as children can completely change uh, when we're adults and when we're in a relationship with somebody who, as I said in the beginning, has parts in them that we don't have, that we're missing, that we need. It helps us kind of stretch into that space and gives us that permission to, to sort of find that space. So if somebody, perhaps one of your listeners hears this and thinks, "Oh my goodness, I have an avoidant attachment style." doesn't mean you'll always have an avoidant attachment Mm -hmm. style or an anxious attachment style. It means that things can be different, but self-awareness is the first thing that needs to happen. And I'll give an example of perhaps, you know, I'm working with a client who's got uh, an anxious attachment style and every time um, their partner leaves to see his family up north, she flips out and gets so upset and worried. And then when he comes back, she kind of pushes him away and says, I don't wanna be near you. It's about helping her understand where that's come from and what's really going on for her, because it's not about him leaving her, it's not about the relationship, it's about what that means to so, her. Uh,
0: why, why it's making her feel like that. Exactly.
1: And so I think in the work that I do, it kind of happens in two stages. You know, People are often coming to see me, obviously about sex, and I do see more women than I, I see men. Um, I don't think that's to say women have more issues than men, I just think that's my practice. Um, It kind of happens in two levels. On on the first level, it's kind of working around what's going on in the here and now, how do we work with uh, practical skills and techniques to alleviate concerns or issues, difficulties that they might be facing. But for the majority of my clients, there is the need then to go deeper. And when we go deeper, people don't like it very much. They don't like going back Mm. um, to things that happened as a child. And often they don't remember things that happened as a child, but if we can create that insight and understanding and in a way it's a healing process what i've seen time and time again is a shift in relationships and a positive a positive shift in relationships
0: awesome i thought about but of about another three topics for our next one i'm not going to step into them now because i think this is just summarized beautifully just so much to talk about there is um But I just, I think it's so amazing the inside. But what I love about it is like, we do talk about sex, but it's the mentality behind relationships and what it does with everything that really, Mm. I find, obviously I find sex fascinating. But I just, I think how it's all intertwined is is amazing. And and you obviously love what you do so much.
1: I do, I love it. I love love educating people. So like a platform like this makes my heart Mm. so happy because if it means that one person hears this Mm. and says, oh my goodness, that's me, I need to make a change. I've done something, right? Yeah, that's, that's, what, that's what matters to me. But you know, most people, couples, when they come to see me, they come in with this notion that sex is the problem. And I would say that eight out of 10 times, it is not the case. And the things that they're struggling with sexually are a symptom or an outcome of what's going on in the relationship or going on for them personally on an individual level. Um, and so, yes, of course, we always wanna talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Sex sells, it's a great topic. But at the foundation of a great sexual relationship, uh, of of great sex, is a good, solid relationship. Mm. And at the foundation of a good, solid relationship, I feel, is great communication and good self awareness.
0: Awesome. Great. Can you tell us anything you're doing in the next? six 12 months oh
1: lots oh yeah. but I mean, and, and
0: where people can follow you and <laughs> okay all that kind
1: of stuff. God, what am i doing in the next okay so
0: oh, uh, i'm presenting
1: that. lots of workshops which is great i run a lot of women's workshops around the,
0: around the
1: world I, around the world yes i'm doing one in cape town in august oh. in nigeria i'm doing a couples workshop in november i'm presenting at a, a global conference i'm very excited about in mexico in october i'm oh, getting God. around a bit uh <laughs> Uh, so yeah and I actually did a I did one of my women's workshops here in London in in April and it was a huge huge success i was my pilot one in london and it went really well so i definitely be looking to do at least one a year and then in terms of following me my website is um c-a-t-r-i-o-n-a-b-o-f-f-a-r-d katrina com, and i'm on instagram and facebook and twitter at katrina buffard so you can find me i do a lot on instagram like educational stuff posts about sex tips sex facts you know quotes did you know research that i'm reading things that i'm seeing that are happening so people can keep up with me there if they amazing. want amazing and one day my podcast yes
0: i think it'll be amazing yeah, it'd i be think that will be awesome thank you so much thank um, you. i appreciate it i know you're only here for a small period but i really do appreciate you coming
1: on i love being here hayden thank you okay. talk about sex for days <laughs> <Thank you. laughs>